Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Take your Bibles. Let's start with uh, turning in the Word this morning to Acts chapter 3, where we left off last week. Let's turn to Acts chapter 3, and we'll be starting in verse 11. When you found Acts chapter 3, verse 11, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And let's read a few verses this morning and see what God has to say to us. So Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11, it reads like this. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. (laughs) But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witness. And his name, (laughs) through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. (laughs) Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus (laughs) fulfilled. Father, this morning we have truly been blessed with our time together in singing and fellowship. And even though... Seems to be gloomy outside, Father. I pray this morning that you fill us with your spirit and remind us of why we're here. We're not here because we're looking to feel better. We're here because of what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't make us worship, we don't know that Jesus. So this morning I ask this of you, that you strengthen my body as only you can, that you hide me behind the cross. And the only thing that's seen or heard this morning is you and all of your glory. And it's to the honor and the praise of the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So last week we talked about this second sermon of Peter's. Second sermon of Peter's after the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit has come and indwelled them. And, and there's been that marvelous scene at Pentecost when they were, were speaking in different languages and the people were gathered together and they could hear what the, the Galileans, those unlearned men, and were saying in their own language. And they just marveled at that. And the first sermon was preached and some 3,000 people came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it was, it was brought together, it was orchestrated, it was all put together by God and it was worked through the Holy Spirit as he he came as, as he caused them to marvel, it told us in earlier chapters in chapter 2. And here again, here again we see that there has been this, this marveling of, of the people because of the work of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit has come. And, and as, as Peter was going in and, and John was going into the temple, they passed the lame man, if you remember, from a few weeks ago. And, and they said, in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. And then they or now find themselves standing on that porch, that portico of Solomon, named after Solomon, used for righteous judgment by Solomon. And, and there they stand, and there's this crowd that has rushed at them, and they stand, Peter and John, with the lame man, the former lame man, <laughs> grasping tightly a hold of them. And before them stands this crowd 
Peter does what any good preacher does. I believe he's a Baptist preacher because he makes some points in his sermon, six of them, matter of fact, we're going to look at with six names. But he stands before them, and with the opportunity there, he preaches. He preaches. He uses that which the Holy Spirit has already done to marvel them and the healing of this lame man that they've seen sit at this temple for 30, 40 years. He rebounds off of what the Holy Spirit has done, has done and now he gives them the gospel. And he does it in this portico of judgment. Peter gives six names for Jesus that indicates to those gathered there that he is the Messiah. We're quick to read over these names and not even notice them as names actually, but there are six messianic names or titles that actually prove the point that he is the Messiah. It proves the Messiahship of, of Jesus. And each of these six messianic names or titles do two things to those that are gathered there and hopefully will do it to your heart this morning. <laughs> There's two things that they do. <laughs> they point to Jesus as the Messiah, the Redeemer, the, the coming one, the one that God sends. And then they judge those Jews and us <laughs> for our rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. See, it does two things. Each of these names points to Jesus as the Messiah, and each of those names point to us as sinners, <laughs> rejecting that Jesus, that Messiah. And, and what more fitting place for this to take place than in Solomon's porch, this place of righteous judgment. And today we're going to stand with those Jews in Solomon's porch, and we're going to look at the names of Jesus and, <laughs> and being judged for how we respond. How do we respond to this, this Messiah? <laughs> Our Savior, I'll give you a little relief. We won't get to all six names today. I saw some of you be digging for crackers in your pocket. We won't get to all six today. You already knew that, I'm sure. But let's start with the very first one. The very first one is probably the most startling of all of them, and it comes to us there in Acts 3.13, and it is called the glorified servant. It says this in the 13th verse, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. Peter starts with the common ground of the Old Testament. He starts with the common ground of the Old Testament when he says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers. He understands that these folks standing before him are, are devout Jews. They're the ones who are coming to the temple for a particular reason, which is to worship. And they're coming because they, they have an understanding of some sort of who this, this God is. They look back through their history and their history tells them who this God is. And what does their history tell them? It, it tells them exactly where we should always start when we're presenting Jesus. We start with God. We start with who God is. And, and their history reminds them of who God is when he says, the God of Abraham. Well, who was Abraham for them? See, he was from the covenant. The covenant that the Jewish people have with God came through Abraham, if you remember. Do you remember the stars and the sand? And from your lineage will come the one who blesses the covenant. The covenant that made them God's people, so to speak, came through this Abraham. So, so that was a big point. <laughs> he, he, he moves from Abraham and he, and he says, Isaac. <laughs> well, who's Isaac? Isaac is better known as the son of promise. Remember? The son of promise. Remember how he came into this world? Through an old lady with a barren womb. He came at the prophetic message of God that she will have a son. <laughs> she will have a son. If you also remember this Isaac, there's another key part of his story. It had a little something to do with a stack of wood, a stick of fire, and a knife. 
you remember, he was taken to the top of the mountain, offered as a sacrifice by this Abraham. And God said, now that I know you trust me, do not do that. Do not do that. I will provide, if you remember. So this is the son of promise. Then he moves from the son of promise, and he, he says, Jacob. Wow. Jacob. Who is this Jacob? You know, names mean everything. Names mean everything in the Bible. He started off as Jacob, but what did he wind up as? Israel. <laughs> Who is it that's standing before Peter in the portico? Israel. See, this Jacob later became known as, as, as Israel, <laughs> and it's from whom? There came 12 traps. Remember the story? See, he gets right to the point. He gets right to the point. This God that I'm about to tell you about, you already know. You already know who he is. It's evident. It's evident in your history. It's evident in the world around you. It's evident. Let me, let me give you the points. Boom, boom, boom. Here's this God. You are who you are today because of who God is. That's what he's telling them, standing in the portico. He agrees with them that God is the God of our fathers. Notice he says. He says, yes, I understand that, that you say he's the God of your fathers, but put me in the bunch. Put me in the bunch. He's, he's the God of our fathers. I'm right here with you. They believe in the same God. It's just they don't understand who God is. And that's the point he's about to make. He's not like I'm telling you about a different God. No, I'm telling you about the same God. You just don't understand who this God is. He started with the Old Testament saints to prove a point. He started there to prove a point that the prophets of old had prophesied specifically about this Messiah. This Messiah. And that the Messiah had already come. And that this Messiah was God's servant. <laughs> now Peter hits home when he tells him in that 13th verse that the same God, the same God whom they trusted in, the same God who their fathers trusted in, that same God, that same God has glorified his servant. I find it interesting that he starts with servant. Some translations, by the way, some of you are looking at your Bible and you're looking at me and saying, my Bible doesn't say that, Pastor. And I realize that. I realize if you hold a King James Bible in your hand right now, it says son. It says son. Let's address that before we go any further. It says son. It says son, but it's better understood as servant. I can prove it to you. The word that's used there from the Greek is the word pahis. Pahis is the word pahis. It can mean son, daughter, child, or servant. You would say by the abundance of how it's translated in the Bible would tell you exactly how it probably should be translated. So I stopped and I looked. In the New Testament, it's translated 24 times or used 24 times in the New Testament. Once it's translated as young man. Once it's translated as maid. Once it's translated as maiden. Once it's translated as manservant. Twice it's translated as children. Five times is translated as child. Three times is translated as son, one of those times being an axe. But ten times out of the 24, it's translated as servant. It's translated as servant. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? It's not, unless you get hung up on the words in your translation. <laughs> because there's one thing that each of those translated words have in common. If you put it within the context, which you should always do, of where it's used, no matter what the word is, the context will tell you what it means. 
And when you put it within the context of how it's translated in all those cases, the idea that comes out of its usage, whether it says child, maiden, son, servant, no matter what it says, the idea that comes out behind it from the context it's used in is the idea that it's a representative of someone or that it's a servant of someone. For instance, if you bump into one of my children, whether it's my son or my daughter, in some respect, they have a representation of me, don't they? I mean, isn't that what is so significant in some countries that they kill female babies to make sure there's a son to carry on the name to be a representative? And that's the point that's made when it says son of God. It's really a servant or representative of God. See, it's not the most common used word for for servant, which is the word doulos that we know in other places, which doulos is the word for servant or compelled to serve one. But what is used here is that word uh, pais. Pais is more of a servant as a representative. Today, what would we call that in in our political world? We would call it ambassador. Ambassador. Think of it as an ambassador. When an ambassador goes to a foreign country, what does he do? He represents our president. He represents our nation. See, Jesus had come to another world, so to speak, another country. It's a place called Earth. He he came to live on as the ambassador, as the ambassador of Jesus, as the ambassador of God, as this Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying there is that this Jesus, this Jesus that, We're going to talk about group, this Jesus that you killed, this Jesus that you don't quite understand. He's an ambassador. He's a representative of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't think a hush fell over that crowd much like it has here this morning because they started connecting the dots. They started connecting the dots. Peter brings this picture of a servant into view because of who his audience is. You see, they were looking for a Messiah. They no doubt were looking for a Messiah because of prophecy. But their idea of a Messiah was way different than who the Messiah was. Remember, they were looking for this Messiah to come in and to conquer, one who would rule over all things. They thought he would just come in taking charge of everything. And it was just outside, completely outside of their thought process to think that Messiah would come and be a servant. It made made no logical sense to them that he would come and not conquer, but he would come and serve. You see, but a proper, a proper understanding of who Jesus is begins with a proper understanding of, of what he was to be. See, to understand who this Jesus is that came, you must understand what it was that he was to be. So Peter takes him then. Peter takes him through what they should have already known. It was clearly, it was clearly given to them by the prophets who gave them understanding from God about who this Messiah was. Yet, Like good religious folks, they only picked out the pieces they wanted and they left the stuff they didn't want on the table because it was plainly told to them what this Messiah, who this Messiah would be. The prophets spoke of his servanthood to God, that this Messiah that come would be a servant to God or of God. There are many, many, many places in the Bible we can look. Let's just look at a couple this morning because we're short on time. Still have your Bibles open. Flip back to Isaiah 
back in the Old Testament because that's where the prophets are located, back in Isaiah. And if you'll find that 52nd chapter, uh, I won't read it to you, but we'll just highlight through it. Maybe you'll want to make some notes in in your Bible this morning about it. But Isaiah 52, 13, all the way down through the 12th verse of the 53rd chapter, really speaks of the servanthood of of this Messiah that was to come. It starts off there in that 13th verse of the 52nd chapter, and it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So it starts off that section talking about this my servant. Who who servant? My servant. It's not the prophet Isaiah's servant. Who's the prophet Isaiah speaking for? God. God starts off this passage, a great passage if you know Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. He starts off by saying this is my servant. So it's important to understand that Jesus came to serve, yes. But his first and foremost duty was to serve God Almighty. It was to serve God Almighty. He was the servant of God. And Isaiah says that he will be exalted, exalted to God, exalted by God, exalted to the right hand of God. So if we skip forward over to the 53rd chapter, and you can go home and read those verses in between. If we skip over to the 53rd chapter, we know this chapter. We know this chapter well. There are many places in this 53rd chapter of Isaiah. You may not know what you know comes from there, but I think you're going to realize in a minute that it does. See, he starts off in that 53rd uh, chapter in the second verse, and he says this, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when you see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There are several he's and him's, and hopefully they're capitalized in your translation of the Bible. When it starts off in the second verse, it says, For he, speaking of Jesus, so it could read, For Jesus shall grow up before him, speaking of God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He's saying that out of nowhere, out of nothing, out of the ordinary, will come this Messiah, will come this servant. He's not going to come in on a white horse, with a blazing crown, with a legion of others with him. No, it says, out of nothing, he'll grow up as a tender root out of this dry ground. He goes on to verse 3, you can read it later, but it says that this tender reed, this one that will grow up before God, this one that God puts in place that, that it told us has no form, he's really comely. He's he's nothing to look at. There's nothing about him that makes him jump out as being the Messiah just looking at him. But then he says there in verse 3 that this one is going to be despised and rejected. He says in verse 4 that he bore our griefs and sorrows. He was smitten by God. Goes on to say that he was wounded because of our transgressions. He was bruised because of our iniquities. Even goes on to say that we have all gone astray and God laid every bit of it on him. And it goes on to say that this Messiah, this one that came out of nothingness, was was of no beauty that would attract you to him, that, that all these things he served God in taking and doing. It says that he did it without opening his mouth, without lashing back. 
Verse 7 says he did it as a lamb that was led to slaughter. Dumb about where he was going as a lamb, but this Jesus that was led as a lamb was not dumb about where he was going. He did it as a servant to God. What was God's response? Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord. Yet it pleased the Lord. How do you wrap your head around that? How do you wrap your head around the fact that God loved me, a sinner, you a sinner, so much he sent his only begotten son to be beaten, spit upon, a crown thrust upon his head, to die on a cross, and was pleased? How do you wrap your head around it? I can't. But I know it says he was. It says it it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put into grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. See what this servant to God did? Satisfied. Satisfied the penalty. The penalty that we should have paid. The penalty that we owed. He was a servant in to God in, in paying the price for our sin. Somehow that servitude to the Almighty God pleased the Lord and he was satisfied. The prophet Isaiah speaking for God said that Jesus would come as a servant. Matthew reiterated this for us. Matthew reiterated this for us when he tells us about the Pharisees' plans to destroy him in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, he tells this story starting in the 14th verse when it says this and the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him and it says when Jesus knew it he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying See, he said that the Pharisees, Matthew said that the Pharisees just could not take it anymore. To put the passage in context, if you read the one immediately ahead of it to do that, you'll understand that what had just happened, Jesus had healed someone on the Sabbath. You talk about someone's head blowing off. The the Pharisees went bananas. They they went berserkers. They they lost their mind. You're going to heal somebody on the Sabbath? Are you crazy? We put down the number of steps we can walk on a Sabbath without breaking the law, and we make it just so we can get to our house, to the temple, and back. We're so adamant about keeping the law. And you're going to heal somebody? It made them so mad, it said they decided, we're going to kill this guy. He's done. This isn't going to happen again. We're going to plot to destroy him. (laughs) Destroy him. Says Jesus withdrew. A great multitude followed him. And it says, while they were with him, what did he do? He healed them. (laughs) I love it when a great plan comes together. It doesn't say we switch days. Did you notice? It never said we switch days. It never said it now became Sunday instead of Saturday, the Sabbath. Why were they mad? (laughs) He was healing people. (laughs) How mad do you think they are now? A great multitude shows up. He says, hey, you don't want me to heal on the Sabbath? You're not my God. Be healed. 
he heals a bunch from the multitude. It says many. Many of those who came were healed. And then he says these words that are kind of baffling. It says, okay, you've been healed, but do me a favor. Don't tell anybody. Don't, don't tell anybody. How would that work in the Baptist church? <laughs> the grapevine would be going 500 miles an hour by the time the first person was healed. But he says, no. It says he warned them not to make him known. He warned them not to make him known. Not to go out and proclaim that he was something special. Don't, don't, don't go out and tell them that I'm here to conquer everything. He knew in his mind what they were looking for in a Messiah. And he knew this would be the opportunity for them to say the Messiah is here. He's come to rule Pharisees, you're out. Mm -mm. He didn't come to conquer. He came to serve. He says in verse 17 that, that it might be fulfilled what Isaiah said. What did Isaiah say? And it tells us in verses 18 through 21, it's out of Isaiah 42. It says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. <laughs> See, what Jesus said is, you don't need to go warn them. They've been warned. <laughs> They've been warned. You don't know, need to go set me up as a conquering king. I'm the servant. I'm the servant. And in my name, in my name, <laughs> Everyone will have an opportunity to be healed of the sin in their life. He says, it's in my name. He says, I'm God's chosen servant. I'm chosen by God. I'm anointed by God's spirit. And I'm bringing justice to the Gentiles. By the prophecy of, of God's prophets, and by the very mouth of Jesus, he said that he was a servant of God. But Jesus also was a servant of man. Never forget not only did he serve God, but he served man. This is where the joy leaps up in my heart. Because by being a servant of man, I know that he was a servant to me. To me personally. Matthew 20, since we're already in that book. Flip over to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, 27. says this. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Or your servant, it says. What is the instruction that he's giving here? This is right after Zebedee's sons came and asked Jesus a question through their mother. Hey, when you set up that kingdom of yours, don't you think these two fine strapping young men would be good at your left hand and your right hand? Don't you think that they would just be awesome? And Jesus makes this statement. And whoever denies or desires to be first, let him be the slave. Let him be the servant. And then he puts an exclamation point when he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said his purpose in coming was not to have others come and serve him. No, his purpose in coming was to serve the, to the point, to the very point of giving his life for those that he served. See, the plan of God required plan of God required that the one who came to fulfill the plan 
be the servant of the one who designed the plan. And Jesus said, I'm the servant of God. But it also required that the one who was come to fulfill the plan be a servant to those who the plan was designed for. See, not only does the plan require Jesus to be a servant of God, it requires Jesus to be a servant of man. The plan was not designed to be forced upon you, for you to be made to obey, to be poured down your throat and forced. It was not a new law that was to be enforced by an iron rod or some new ruler. No, this plan required that the fulfiller of the plan demonstrate the servanthood that was required in the plan. That the ones needing the fulfillment of the plan needed to be served by the plan giver. In other words, this. There's nothing that man could do to save himself. The only way that he could be saved is for the servant of God to come and be a servant to pay the penalty for that sin. The plan was never that you could work good enough or read enough scripture or sing enough songs or be a member of enough churches or be baptized enough times to be saved. No. The plan was you couldn't do it. You can't do it. The law was put in a place to prove to you that you can't do it. Break one, you've broke them all. But there was a servant. His name was Jesus. That servant was sent to be the fulfillment of the plan by being the servant to man. And the only way God, the plan giver, could demonstrate his love for us and the fulfillment of the plan was for a servant to come and serve those who needed the plan. And Jesus did just that. Remember John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. No greater love. What greater love can be demonstrated to us than the love of An only begotten son being sent by a holy God to die upon a cross for our sins because he loved us. See, how do we show love? How do we show love to those that we love? We serve them. We serve them. And it says in John 15, 13, he laid down his life for his friends. I don't know about you. I'm excited to know that God calls me his friend. God calls me his friend because of what the servant did on my behalf. And how is it that we serve those that we call our friends? We serve. We serve in love. We serve sacrificially. We sometimes, most times, all times, put them ahead of us. You see, God showed us desire to be our friend by the servanthood of Jesus. One of the most beautiful examples of servanthood for us is an example I used with the kids this morning. John 13. You know the story of John 13. We'll look very quickly at John 13. But John 13 gives us the story of this Jesus, this Messiah. As he approaches the last of his days here on this earth, and that very first verse is one of the most amazing verses in Scripture to me when it says, first, uh, chapter 13, verse 1 of John, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, it says he loved them to the end. Jesus was fully aware of what the end was. 
He was fully aware that the end was fast approaching. He had said, if you'll read the context by reading the the chapter before, he had said and he had heard this discussion going on. What was the discussion? I think I'm the best out of you 12. I I think I'm top. Remember, remember I I did such and such. Remember, I brought so and so. The discussion among the 12 was what? (laughs) Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest among us? See, they did what men do when they get together and they tell hunting stories. (laughs) It's who's got the greatest story. They did what women do when they talk about their their grandkids. Who's got the greatest grandkid? They sat around and they talked about, hey, i got to be the greatest because of. (laughs) And Jesus had heard this. They're sitting there eating dinner. And as they're eating dinner... It was customary of the day that the servant of the house would cleanse each of their feet. Because remember, they didn't pull up a chair to the table. They pulled up a pillow, which meant as their head was laying at the table, their feet would be near someone else's head. So it was customary of the day for the the servant of the house to wash the dust from their feet. Because anytime you walked around in sandals on dirt roads, you wound up dusty. And just for pure cleanliness, they did that. But it was a gesture of the, the person who was having the dinner, as well as the servant of of humbleness and gratitude for their presence. Yet nowhere in this story do we read that that had happened. And Jesus sat around the table with them, and he heard this discussion about, hey, i got to be the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And it says he just got up. (laughs) It it says he just got up. In verse 4 it says, he rose from supper, and he laid aside his garment. So he took off his outer robe, and he laid it down. Could you imagine as the discussion was going on, someone was thinking, Jesus doing? Why is he getting up? Are we through? What's happening? And it says that he took this towel at this point, and it says that he girded himself. He made a a belt, a waistband with a towel hanging down from his waistband, girded about him. I can imagine your thoughts now. Did he drink all that cup over there? Is something wrong with Jesus? What? What's happening? And it says after that, he poured water into a basin. Isn't it interesting to know that everything to be a servant to those that were there was in the room? Isn't it interesting to think he didn't go to the closet and get out a bowl, and he didn't go down to the well and get water. Everything required to be a servant to the others was in the room. The towel the basin, and the water. And it says he took that water and he poured it into the basin. And one by one he went to the feet of the disciples and cleansed them. What a beautiful picture. He washed their feet. It says in verse 4, he took the towel that he had girded himself with and he dried their feet off as a servant. Jesus knew that the greatest in the kingdom would be the greatest servant on this earth. And he was demonstrating it to them as they were having a discussion about who was the greatest. Matthew then tells us when he comes to Peter, he has a little problem. Remember Peter, you could always recognize him because his mouth was shaped like a foot because he was constantly sticking his foot in his mouth. Here once again as Jesus goes around, that's why I like to think that that's Peter sitting there because it gives me a chuckle because I see myself in Peter. He goes to Peter, and he goes to wash his feet. What does Peter say? This ain't happening, dude. 
Uh, I'm sorry, that's today's language. He says, "Uh uh-uh. Do. I get it. I wonder if he left Peter to last. (laughs) Peter watched 11 other people's feet be washed, and the whole time he's thinking, this is not going to happen. No. Not going to happen. And that's what he says. You're not going to wash my feet, he says in verse 6. And Jesus answered in verse 7, what I am doing, you don't understand now. But you will. But you will after this. Which raises a question. What is the this he's talking about? Is it after the washing of the feet? Uh -uh. (laughs) It's after the end that was mentioned in verse 1. He loved them to the end. What's the this that's going to make Peter understand what Jesus had just done? The end. The end of Jesus' life on this earth. (laughs) Jesus says when that happened, when the end comes... All of you are going to understand what it means to be a servant. You're all going to get the picture. I love Peter's answer. It should be our answer. See, his answer to Jesus was, you know what? Since you put it that way, Jesus, don't stop at my feet. Would you wash my hands and my head? How about just give me a whole bath? If if that's what you must do, get all of me. See, Peter was always, always out or always in. And Peter said, get me all. You remember Jesus said, you know what, Peter? You've already been washed. I just need to knock the dust off every now and then for you. And that's what he's telling him. We, like the Jews standing before Peter that day, need to understand that God made a plan for our salvation. He had a plan before time ever began, before you ever breathed your first breath. God had a plan. And while that plan has a central person, a central thing that is a king, what it does not have, it was proven by Christ's first coming, is the central figure, the king of your salvation. The first time that king came to rescue you from the perils of your sin, he did not come as the conquering Messiah. He came as a servant of God. Now there will come a day. There will come a day, and it's drawing very quickly, when the next time, the next time he comes, there will be no there will be no holding back. There will be a conquering Messiah. But what he's telling them that are gathered and telling us this morning is this Messiah, this one that you killed on the cross, you didn't recognize him as Messiah because you were looking for a conquering king, yet he came. He came as a servant of God to save you from your sins because that's the plan. See, that's the plan. That Jesus would come as the Messiah, a servant to God and a servant to man. This morning I ask you, who is this Jesus to you? Do you recognize that Jesus served God by coming to down a cross for your sins? That God had a plan in place, had a plan in place for your salvation that required a servant. And when he looked around all of heaven, the servant that was chosen was his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And it says because of our sin, he was sent. As a matter of fact, Isaiah said that all of our sin was put upon him. He was beaten. He he was crucified because we sinned. He came as a willing servant to do that which the Almighty God asked on our behalf.
as a servant both to God and to us. The question this morning is this. Is he your servant? Have you ever accepted him as your Lord and your Savior? Are you trying your best to get to heaven through the things that you do or the knowledge that you have or the compassion that you show or your attendance at church? Is is that your path? Breaking news, that path leads to the same place as the drug addict and the murderer. It's a place called hell. You can work in the church all of your life and never know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you will spend eternity in the same place as the guy who killed a baby down the street. A place called hell. Your name on a roll, being wet in a baptismal pool, growing up in church all your life will just make you another one of those people that think they're good enough yet spend eternity in a place called hell. There's only one way. There's only one way. It's through a servant named Jesus. He came to pay a price that we couldn't pay for a sin he did not commit. And he did it because God said, go. Go. I love them, and I'm going to love them through your blood. I'm going to save them through your death. I'm going to give them hope through your resurrection. You know, it's time we quit playing games with eternity. It's time we realize when the breath stops here, we're going to be one of two places. You're either going to be in a place called hell or you're going to be in the eternal presence of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ in a place called heaven. I don't know about you, but I want to hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And I want it to start with my accepting him as my Lord and my Savior for all of eternity because I cannot pay that price myself. This morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you meet me down front in a few minutes. Give me two minutes of your time to explain how that takes place in your life. Maybe this morning you do know him, but you've lost that joy. (laughs) I don't know about you. I feel really, really good when I go home and Wendy's made supper for me or at the end of the day she's done something special knowing that her day's been difficult. You know, I feel really good when Someone comes up and says, Pastor, can I help you with that? When I know that their life's busy, their life's full of things. You know, when someone serves me, I feel awesome about that, don't you? Don't you? Don't you think it's time you make God your father feel awesome? And you start being a servant. Don't you think it's about time that you realize that you were served by Jesus Christ and now it's your duty it's your obligation, it's your heart to serve others in his name. That can take on a variety of, of things, a variety of ways, but it starts with a change in the heart. Maybe this morning you would come and say, you know what, I don't know what it is, and that doesn't matter. God, I'm going to lay a blank check. I'm going to lay, lay a blank check of my life on the altar, signed, saying I'll serve, you send. It's not my job to pick. It's yours, God. It's my job to serve. I'm going to do it. Is it going to be easy? No, nope. Bible tells you no. Not going to be. Anything easy is not worth doing. Anything hard is worth having. <laughs> Maybe this morning you need to come to a realization that it's time. It's time to serve as you were served. Maybe this morning you're looking for a church home, a place that you can come serve the Lord with gladness. I tell you, this is the place.
This is a place. We have a church full of servants' hearts. Come be a part of that this morning. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.